0: All right, as you can see, title of the sermon today will be Patterns of Authority and the Je- Spirit of Jezebel. Very much kind of considering what marriage can be. That's been a major focus for me recently. Um, yep, uh, major focus for me uh, this entire year. Um, it's kind of... Um, I don't know if you call it a dread study or whatever, just something that's been mulling around in the back of my mind and my spirit the entire year, and I'm trying to, uh, I think I'm finally ready to present on it um, as the last couple weeks. So we'll see what we come up with today, and hopefully if I end up being stoned for what I have to say, the Lord will count it as martyrdom. (laughs) So we will start at Revelation 2. The message, or the... Prophecy to the church in Thyatira. And to the angel of the church in Thyatira write, The words of the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. But I have this against you that you tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality. And to eat food sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation, unless they repent of her works. And I will strike her children dead, and all the churches will know that I am he who searches mine in heart, and I will give to each of you according to your works. But to the rest of you in Thyatira, who do not hold this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan... To you I say, I do not lay on you any other burden, only hold fast what you have until I come. The one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father. And I will give him the morning star, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches." It will become very clear to you all as I continue to go through scriptures that the topics of authority are very prominent in each of these passages that I've selected. The idea of getting authority correct is um, utterly crucial for the Christian life. Um, It can even be said that it's the issue of the universe. Literally all of creation operates under authority and rule of God and of his Christ and as it says right there in verse 27, even as I myself have received authority from my Father, that's a past tense, that Christ is prophesying and speaking to his church, and he has received all authority in heaven and earth. And we see that also um, in the Great Commission. It's a past tense. I've received all authority in heaven and earth, therefore go, I'm with you always, go disciple the nations, baptize in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, um, and teaching them to observe and obey all that I've commanded you. Because he has all authority, he has the ability to give it. But he also raises and falls any sub-authorities from himself. And so the promise in the Thyatira is, if you're, if you're able to repent and overcome um, the things that he's bringing to light, specifically the, permit, the permitting of Jezebel, authority will be given. So I think that's very important to recognize in this passage. But first off, who is Jezebel and why does she matter? So historically, Jezebel became queen of Israel when she get, was given to King Ahab in a marriage alliance with the Sidonians. She's famous for her fanatical pursuit of idolatrous worship to Baal and Asherah, Asherah, whatever, uh, which she instituted in the land of Israel by the authority of her husband and her brutal tactics of enforcement and intimidation. You can read about that in 1 Kings, uh, First and 2 Kings specifically, but also one of the things I liked to notice was that King Ahab and Jezebel also had a daughter named Athaliah uh, that was given to Jehoram, king of Judah, in a marriage alliance. So King Ahab was king of the northern kingdom, and um, eventually Jehoram, king of Judah, was the southern kingdom's king, and both of them, therefore, the northern and the southern kingdoms, were um, very much infected and assailed uh, with Baal worship and... um, idolatrous uh, activities because of the marriage alliance with Ahab and Jezebel that permeated the entire land. So that's very important. And that was very dark days in Israel. And this is also where we see Elijah come onto the stage and so forth. So that's kind of just briefly kind of what, where that comes from, where that reference comes from in the Old Testament. Um, But understanding that Ahab, who has authority, is king, Mary, intermarrying with uh, women outside of the covenant brings, um, brings all kinds of temptations along with it because of um, what we'll discuss potentially is called the balance of power that goes on in marriages. Um, the people of God were therefore seduced to follow after strange gods and play the harlot. So we see this referenced again in Revelation 2 in Thyatira, this person, Jezebel. Obviously, it was several hundred years uh, or more uh, that was in between. So, why does that matter in the New Covenant context? Well, there is a demonic power named Jezebel. It still influences and afflicts the purposes of God and the church to this day in the New Covenant, in the New, in the New Covenant time. So, the warning to the church at Thyatira is to wake up and repent of their involvement in the demonic prophetic utterance and sexual immoralities and idolatries perpetuated by Jezebel. The thing is, that's a very strong manifestation. For your church to get involved in all of that, you had to go wrong about a dozen times before then. (laughs) Maybe more. There's so many stages to find yourself that far out there into error that I find it necessary to consider what is it that causes that error um, and leads to those extreme manifestations. Because there's far more subtle things that go on every day in every church probably in the entire world. Far more subtle issues. Those issues, I think, and this is my humble submission and thesis, is issues of authority, gender roles, and balances of power and giftedness in the family and church, specifically between male and female. When those things are out of order, Jezebel is easily able to influence. So we'll examine some of that. Where else would we want to start but the fall? (laughs) <laughs> the fall of man, that's where it's been going on from since. So, Genesis 3. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say? That's the bingo. Hath God said? God actually said? That's a questioning of authority. Is God really, is the word of God really, the truth here, is it really authoritative? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this... The curse both will highlight just very specific things. Again, I'm not trying to make this the most in-depth, comprehensive exegesis that's ever existed. I want to lay down, my purpose again is to lay down issues of authority, gender roles, especially in marriage, um, and the patterns set forth in scripture for those designs, and to be able to see how authority plays into all of that. So when we see phrases like, in the curse, your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. We are talking about authority. We're talking about the heart posture of the woman towards the authority of her husband. That is a very direct um, involvement with the curse. What, I, what was disregarded in terms of the authority and leadership by the woman leading the man into sin is now solidified in, in its original design. I got that phrase pretty much out of one of the commentaries, and I liked it so much Um, One of the commentaries in the library that I was reading, I liked it so much because it reminded me uh, that not only will the man rule the woman and the woman will have to exist within that sphere, specifically in marriage, that that was actually part of the design of the original perfect creation. It wasn't abided by. God gave Adam the stewardship of the garden. Adam was about doing his work and trying to be fruitful and multiplying and take dominion. God made Eve out of Adam to help him accomplish that. He was incapable of being fruitful before Eve and taking full dominion and filling the earth with men and women that will help continue to take dominion and cultivate the earth. There was no way that that would have been able to occur apart from Eve, and we'll see that again in 1 Corinthians where man and women are not independent of each other, but man did come first. He was the authority. He was the one given the stewardship. He was the one given the word of God, and it was something that he was responsible for uh, maintaining. So just because the curse says your desire should be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you, it's solidifying something that was already present pre-curse, pre fall That's the design of God. Unfortunately, now there's strife. Unfortunately, now there's there's conflict. There's a contrary desire in the heart that would uh, frustrate these things. Let's make sure I hit that last one. Yeah. Now there's a sinful inclination in the heart of the woman towards the authority of her husband. To the man... Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Man is to live by every word that proceeds from the mouth of the Lord. Adam yielded to a word that originated with a serpent and was received and obeyed by the woman. This is man failing to lead and guard and protect the integrity of the glorious creation made perfect by the very word of God. Man is cursed because he hearkened unto his wife in contradiction to God's word. And I, I, I want to try to avoid making a whole bunch of qualifying statements about trying to apply this into, you know, because that's where we, our mind naturally goes. is okay, we've said this is what the Word of God says, now I want to apply it. I really don't want to go into a whole bunch of qualifiers. I want to just kind of treat the Word as what the Word says. But here's a qualifier. Just because man hearkened unto his wife, it wasn't that it was sin. It's that the Word of God was disregarded in that moment. He had the uh, responsibility, the authority to uphold the word of God, veto the word of the wife and the serpent, and he did not. Hearkening unto your wife is not a sin, (laughs) automatically. It's not automatically a sin. It's when the word of anyone, including your wife, is contrary to the word of God. That's when you have men in general and women. Uh, All of God's image bearers have the responsibility to uphold the word of God. So there's another qualifier that we're going to end up with a lot of qualifiers, but I'm going to try to not do that in a whole bunch. So, because of the fall, man and woman have strife between them and the rest of creation. Sin has terrible effects. But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. There is hope in Jesus Christ for the curse and the effects of sin. Where strife and enmity exist, in him we have peace and reconciliation, even between the sexes. Imagine that. In the church, we get a glimpse of the new creation and the pattern and order of all things being made new. The New Testament is replete with passages defining and hedging the boundaries of the godly pattern in which we are to walk, and especially in marriage and male and female gender roles. So let's observe a few of those. Ephesians 5. It starts off, the passage starts off, therefore be imitators of God as beloved children. And walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. A few verses later look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best of the time because the days are evil. Therefore do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. A couple of verses later, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ, wives, submit to your own husbands, as to the Lord. Love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. This is the crux of the instructions for men and women in the church. We submit to the patterns espoused by God out of reverence for Christ. This is because we image the glory of Christ and the church in our marital unions we lose sight of this one point, marriage will become a drudgery of strife and power struggles because we have missed the mission of marriage. There are duties and roles to perform in this structured and orderly image-bearing pattern for marriage. I would sidebar and say there is a peculiar glory that God reserves for husband and wife in covenant union. There is a peculiar image-bearing that takes place in the earth that no other relationship truly declares of God's glory. God fills that marriage union that is submitted to Christ, properly ordered and patterned, gives that a peculiar glory that even the nations can witness. If you look at the church, if an, if an outsider looks at the church, a lot of times they'll say, eh, it's full of hypocrites and this and that and the other. It's a little bit more hard to discern the body because of all of its intricate parts and the love that's within itself. It's a little bit harder to see that very quickly. Um, but when you look at a marriage, uh, a, a marriage covenant, when you look at a family and you see how that works, you see how that looks, it's very quick. You spend one evening with a family. You go to dinner with your family one time, with an outsider, they get a pretty good glimpse of what it's like, what your family's doing, the way it's ordered, who wears the pants, so to speak, right? All these different phrases we see to define these, um, these interplays of the power struggle and so forth. That's a very clear witness that even sinners that have no knowledge of church or God or any inclination can see very clearly That's one of the authorities and powers that exists in marriage and the family, and that's what gives it influence. For when a man uh, leaves his father and mother and cleaves to his wife, what's very significant about that is they now have a status and a position in society, in the social construct of authority and influence that extends into the future generations. That didn't exist when they were single or submitted to their parents and so forth in the way it does now. It's a new thing. It's a new creation, a new extension, a, an outworking of the covenant, an outworking of the life of the covenant. That's incredibly beautiful in my mind. I think, that's, I think that's worth lauding. I think that's worth saying thank you to God for it because that's something that is so common in creation. It's what every man and woman, more or less, there's my qualifiers, more or less every man and woman has a desire for, to be fruitful and multiply, to get married, to have children, so on and so forth. That's a natural inclination that's within the hearts of people. It's when that natural inclination starts to disappear or starts to bastardize and go the wrong direction, that's when we start to see disorder. That's, we have to question what's causing the individual to not desire after those things, to not desire after this, that, and the other. Yes, celibacy is a real calling. Yes, it does exist, and so on and so forth. That's not what I'm referring to. God's pattern for man is to be fruitful and multiply, and to do so in the covenant of marriage. It's a beautiful, holy, glorious estate that has tremendous import. And there is a mission that God actually accords with that, to image him in the earth in a way that nothing else really can, except maybe the church in Christ. Christ. Part of this design is clearly, though, authority structure, just as it was clearly part of the garden originally and reinforced within the curse. Women, submit to your husbands, authority words, as the church submits to Christ. Men, love your wives as Christ loved the church, laying his life down for her. Let each one of you love his wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Remember the inclinations in the fall. Men want to become either more passive or more aggressive than they ought. And women will desire, to, will desire after the authority of their husband both to usurp it or to be ruled in ungodly ways. Which is patterns of abuse and being doormats, so to speak. These are patterns of sin. These are not patterns of godly ordered marriage. Godly authority. That's not what those inclinations are, but this, these are inclinations that are within the sinner's hearts, and sinners do get married. These things take shape in marriage and families, but these are the things that actually the pattern, the standard of God, and properly ordered families change. They, they completely eliminate those type of, um, of Outliers or, or extremes on either side of the equation. There is a right authority way of doing things, and that's what we're trying to observe today. This passage directly addresses a correction to the baser sinful desires natural to us since the fall. So it lays a good pattern down for us. Once we see the mission and the pattern of authority for how God will work most fruitfully through marriage, we may explore the roles or duties God gives to both sexes. Roles and duties, I think come after the question of authority. I think that's an issue that comes first and primary. There's, I've heard it said, why do we talk about authority so much? <laughs> I've heard that said, and it's, it's very clear. Because since the fall, hath God really said, is the issue and the questioning of that authority. That question of whose word stands as authoritative as the ruling word is the issue of the entire universe. It's whether or not we actually come to salvation. It's whether or not we will ever be a part of redeemed patterns of life that post-salvation, sanctified, fruitful, redemptive works. If we're not submitted properly or relating properly to authority as God ordains in his word and clearly expresses, we're we're really just spinning our wheels. We're shooting ourselves in the foot. We're spinning our wheels. It's kind of, we have no teeth at that point. It, the issue of authority is super primary, and I think marriage is one of those areas where you gotta, we, have, we as a community and as the church in general have to get it right because we're never going to be able to teach the nations how to worship and love and relate to God if we don't do it right in our, own, in our own homes. So 1 Timothy 2. Here we go. I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling, For Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she will be saved through childbearing, if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. First Timothy 3, the saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. Skipping a few verses which uh, enumerate the qualifications for deacons and um, the nuances there are totally worth studying the differences between elders and deacons and understanding the different things in the church. They're, they're a little, that's beyond the scope of what we're after today, but it's worth Uh, studying out. Verse 14, I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. The clear exhortation is, here's how it's supposed to go. This is how you're supposed to behave in the household of God. It's a pattern. It's a quote unquote law. It's a standard that the apostle is giving to Timothy. Again, very intense. So, uh, let, a, uh, let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I did not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was born first, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. We must resist the temptation to twist the word of God and must also dig for insights to perceive clearly the will of God. This is a hard saying. And if you ever Want some more hard sayings? Read the Gospels. Jesus has a lot of them. This is a difficult saying because we are hard of heart. Coming to this text must be done in a comprehensive biblical exegesis. It must include a thorough understanding of the fall as well as manifestations of sin. Obviously, Paul is referencing Adam and Eve and the deception and the fall of man, so you kind of have to understand the nuances of the fall and the subsequent curses and stuff to truly color in the lines with these passages. It can't just be ripped out of the Bible, taken out of context, and posted, here's the one and only way this works, this is whatever. You have to see the whole scripture and understand God's pattern through many passages of scripture to truly appreciate it um, for what it is. It also must include a clear, equal weight for both sexes and the pattern for the redeemed. It can't just be one side gets slammed and the other side gets slammed. You can't just sit there and put all these burdens on women and none on men. You can't put all these burdens on men and none on women. It, it's even, equitable, equitable standards that are actually complementary. They are complementary standards. They actually enforce the created order, image forth it, that created order, certainly, but they complement each other in a way that's literally beautiful. If the question of authority is answered correctly, man and woman submitting to God and his pattern will find themselves in a more beautiful way. So does that mean that women can't talk, I guess, is the next question, right? (laughs) That's one of the next questions that naturally um, comes from that. I'll answer that when I think in the next slide. Um, So, kind of laying into the men here, he must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? We see in the first passage, a woman submitting to her husband. In the second passage, the husband managing his household and therefore being um, examined and judged according to how he manages. Because he again is the authority and with authority, the investigation, just as in the garden, started with the authority. God investigated what went on, where were they? And he addressed Adam. He was after knowing what Adam was doing, what Adam was saying because he was the authority and he is the head. The head or the authority, so to, uh, they are synonymous, gets the uh, first examination. And he ultimately bears the responsibility for how his household is going. I believe verse 4 of chapter 3 holds a key to balance the equation, therefore. We can never be one-sided in this pattern, for they are a divine tension, as are many things in creation, including truth itself. God always addresses the man first when he judges and investigates because he is the authority. Woman, therefore, has a spiritual covering in the authority of her husband. If she or the house is out of order, the husband will bear consequences. Spiritual authority is, therefore, to be perceived as a grace of God. It's not something to be shunned or, uh, uh, or bucked against. It's not to be rejected or despised. It's a grace of God. But, as we learn from the fall, because the woman is also created in the image of God, she is responsible for her actions, too. God also eventually finds his way after Adam, straight to the woman, and they both receive judgment. They're both responsible for their own actions. God does start with the husband, but the wife also has authority and responsibility in the equation. It's not a passive role, it's just second. There is a hierarchy. There is a structure. A thought question I would pose is, since men seeking to be an overseer, which would be defined as a mature Christian man that is qualified to be ordained as shepherd of the flock and house of God, or a deacon, literally servant, um, are required to be above reproach, temperate, husband of one wife, prudent, respectable, etc. Does this preclude the wife from being these things as well? Just because the long list is in this passage assigned to men, does that mean the wife doesn't have to live by those standards, it's truly on the men? Nope. The wife and the husband, despite the distinctions of roles and the authority structure itself, are to be a single unit, an image-bearing marriage. Therefore, godly character in the dispensation of duties is necessarily required for both. But there's unity in the character and purpose and dignity of both sexes in marriage. Let's say that again. Unity in character, the way you live your life. Purpose, why you live your life and dignity, the value of your life. All of those are completely unified. This kind of gets us to the distinction, and I'll I'll go ahead and sidebar with another qualifier that whatever, it's gonna happen a bunch of times. Um, Egalitarianism versus complementarianism. Commonly that's where this discussion finds its way to, okay? Egalitarianism is defined as all things are equal between men and women, including authority, roles, whatever. They are, it's, a, it's a level playing field, right? That's very much, and they justify that with a number of verses, but one that's probably a proof text is Galatians 3, I think it's 28, forgive me if I'm wrong on that one. Um, which says there are no distinctions between male and female. That's kind of the thrust of that passage. The problem with that is that's not what Paul was talking about. He wasn't talking about gender roles in that passage. He was talking about access to salvation, (laughs) the justification by faith. Both men and women have equal access. There is no distinction. Same as Jew and Gentile, same as slave and free man, so on and so forth. Everyone has equal access to salvation by, by grace through faith and the justification of faith accordingly. That's what that passage is truly talking about. These passages that we're examining are literally talking about roles and authority functions and the distinctions and nuances there. That's what they're literally talking about. So to take so the egalitarian position, I'm sure they have a much more well-rounded exegesis than just that one passage, but that does seem to be one of their um, primary points, doesn't really get to the heart of the New Testament, doesn't really get to the heart of gender roles. And so seeing a complementarian position that... The sexes and the roles and authority structures and the dynamics between men and women actually complement each other in the new creation. Are actually um, uh, they bring forth better fruit, more glory, um, and they actually—it's because they align. I think this is the best way to put it. They align with God's created order and His pattern the complementarian position is therefore far closer to a biblical point. Now, where complementarianism can fall off is when we start to get into um, abuses such as uh, misogyny, patriarchy, um, and uh, where men are so authoritative and so tyrannical, therefore, that they are abusive, that they are wicked, that they um, oppress and destroy instead of lay down their life, Bring life, support life, die for it, and you know self-sacrifice for the purpose of life and the other. Um, those are what I think the common um, offenses and reasons that uh, the nations and even within the church people despise the idea of gender roles and distinctions and authority structures is because of the many abuses that have been espoused based on certain verses, even the ones we're looking at. Um, That's not what I'm talking about today. That's not what we're trying to observe. We're not trying to observe all the different abuses and uh, things that go wrong. I really just want to see what does God say and how do we journey towards that image? How do we journey towards being faithful to the word of God and being incarnate people of the word, uh, being the incarnation of the word, where we put the word where the word becomes flesh in our lives. I really want to see us get to that point. And this is not something you're just going to be able to flip a switch after one little sermon. You're going to have to work this out with your husbands, your wives, whoever you might be engaged to, uh, your disciples, your discipleship groups, and pastors. I want this to become an ongoing conversation. I don't want this to just be like a one-size-fits-all sermon that's automatically going to be applied universally and therefore blah blah, 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 blah. It's not that simple. Life is not that simple. However... The clarity, the doctrine of clarity of Scripture is such that there is a clear line. There is a clear dividing line because the Word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, dividing between joint and marrow, soul and spirit, and laying asunder the thoughts and intentions of the heart. It will cut you to the quick. It will challenge any of your preconceived notions. And that's what I would want for myself and everybody here today. The, The requirements of character are present for both male and female, as I think the last point that I was trying to get to before I sidebarred. This is why when Paul exhorts Timothy to ensure that godly character is evidenced in his flock, he distinguishes what male and female roles and patterns would functionally do because their hearts are aligned in Christ. I am writing these things to you so that, if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth, and we therefore have a pattern for the sexes woven into the very fabric of the structure, pattern, and mission of the church. It is to this biblically ordained pattern that we subject ourselves so that we may glorify God. All right, maybe I've made my point over and over again now. So let's, let's throw some more verses in here. 1 Corinthians 11. Let's color in the lines here a little bit. Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. That's how the pastor's begins. Now I commend you, because you remember me in everything and maintain the traditions, even as I delivered them to you. But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ. The head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head, but every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head, since it is the same as if her head were shaven. For if a wife will not cover her head, then she should cut her hair short. But since it is is disgraceful for a wife to cut off her hair or shave her head, let her cover her head. For a man ought not to cover his head since he is the image and glory of God, but woman is the glory of man. Um, For man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. That is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head, because of the angels. Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman. For as woman was made from man, so man is now born of woman, and all things are from God. I think this is a few verses later. It's actually, oh, it's in the next chapter, uh, 1 Corinthians 14 instead of 11. So that was 11, 1 Corinthians 14. If you're familiar with the book of 1 Corinthians, you're going to get, um, I think it's, Like 11, 12, 13, 14, all kind of give instructions but very specifically for orderly worship and um, obviously male and female things come out of here. But also the spiritual gifts and the definition of love. As The definition of love, the 1 Corinthians 13, very commonly read at marriages, it's the love chapter. But 11 and 14 kind of form some bookends on that. Um, And so love being at the center, let's not forget that. We don't have time to go there, but um, let's listen to this. Uh, ending of chapter 14. As in all the churches of the saints, the woman should keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but should be in submission, as the law also says. Again, there's the authority word. If there is anything they desire to learn, let them ask their husbands at home, for it is shameful for a woman to speak in church. Or was it from you that the word of God came, or are you the only ones it has reached? If anyone thinks that he is a prophet or spiritual, he should acknowledge that the things I am writing to you are a command of the Lord. If anyone does not recognize this, he is not recognized. So my brothers, earnestly desire to prophesy and do not forbid speaking in tongues, but all things should be done decently and in order. The the big thrust of the passage is orderly worship, hierarchies of male and female also uh, within the church. This not just applies to family and marriage context, it applies to orderly worship and structure within the church. That's what we need to see, all right? The details, I'm not trying to dive into details exactly. But again, this is another hard passage for our 21st century Western hard hearts. <laughs> these are exhortations specifically dealing with the dynamics of orderly worship. There are enough discussions in these passages I'll only bring out a couple points. The main issue in these passages is often highlighted as spiritual gifts and orderly worship. But I submit to you that it is authority and orderly worship with spiritual gifts accompanying. The issue of authority is still crucial for all the structures and patterns within the created order. The church's worship is not excluded. So a hard question. Let's see if we can probe this out a little bit. If Paul says women are not permitted to speak, why do we allow women to contribute to the functions of worship and even occasionally teaching for it's improper for a woman to speak in church? There's the question. That's the elephant in the room, right? (laughs) Everybody's everybody's all about that question. Um, The reason is, how could we possibly do that in our service if that's what the word clearly says, right? How do we let any woman speak ever? Because women are to subject themselves to the authorities. It's a primary issue of submission to authority. And when submission to authority both for male and female, are properly submitted to authority, now things can be done in order. But recognize the primary uh, point of of order is the issue of authority. That's what he's talking about with head coverings. It's not just legalistic issues of cutting your hair and wearing hats and stuff. It's It's not about that. It's about head coverings. Um, it's about submission to authority, having, and what he starts with in 1 Corinthians 14 is um, the head of every man is Christ, and the head of every woman is her husband, is man. It's an authority structure. God is the head of Christ. Christ is the head of man. Man is the head of woman, but woman is the glory of man. Man is the glory of Christ, of God, okay? with submission to authority, greater and greater covering actually increases the glory. (laughs) That's literally what you can see when you line it all up like that, the way Paul says it. That's incredible to think about because that's not the way we want to approach it. We don't want to approach it in observing the glory or the beauty or the, the wisdom of the design. We want to approach it of, this infringes on my rights. Hath God really said that I'm not allowed to do this, that, and the other? That's not coming to the text properly. Um, But again, back to the question that we put. If women are subjected to proper authority, all blessedness, all glory, all submission, or all um, uh, fruitful utterance is permitted. There is liberty within the boundaries of the garden. We have every tree you can eat of in in the garden, except the one. Prohibition is very minimal in the kingdom of God. But the boundaries are very distinct. Within the garden, there is fullness of life, love, and liberty, quite literally. We have extreme liberty to hear what God is saying through our wives, hear what God is saying to the church through women, hear what God is saying because we despise not prophetic utterance, but all things are to be done in order, submitted to authority including men. Guess what? Women aren't the only ones that submit to authority. Men do too. <laughs> that's maybe the, the thing that's left out when we consider these passages because we come to it with the wrong heart. If we change our hearts and we're for authority, we see the biblical precedence first off of authority. We see that it's primary. It's a major issue. And we want to submit to God because we love him. He loved because he first loved us. Then we can be properly approaching these texts instead of trying to find ways to oppress one another, which is not the point at all. Um, Let's make sure I got through these slides. Sorry. That means a woman's own volition and reliance on the grace of God must subject herself to the authority of the church as a primary point of order. By the way, so are men. Uh, Women are image bearers, equal in dignity, and they both have access to the grace of God with all manners of giftedness. Women have gifts that complement and sometimes are even more developed than men. (laughs) Guess what? Men have gifts that complement and are sometimes more developed than women. On all kinds of issues and fronts, we are not to set ourselves at odds. We're to be at peace with one another and peace in our marriages, peace in our homes, but recognizing that the purpose and order and mission of marriage, the glory of God in the earth, the image bearing that only male and female can do is so much more important than who's potentially slighted in this equation or the balance of power gets a little bit out of order and so on and so forth that's those are the strife and enmity things that Christ came to f- defeat that we have the privilege of working through to the glory of God submission to God ordained authority does not diminish any standing or dignity or equal access to salvation despite what the cultural milieu would espouse our world hates these thoughts Sinners hate the thought because they're still bound to the curse. They haven't been released from the curse with the new life, the new pattern of Christ. We have to teach them how this works. We have to incarnate the word. We have to become this to disciple the nations. We have to teach them God's pattern. We must welcome them into the family of God, and as many are apportioned faith and repentance from dead works, they also must be taught to wash their garments in the word. Therefore, by cleansing every attitude, motivation, and practice that does not accord with the glory of God from their lives, they they too may be approved and become useful for every good work. So, back to Jezebel, and why the heck does she even have anything to do with all of this? (laughs) Jezebel is a manifestation of rebellion, of God's order and pattern for marriage, gender roles, authority, and orderly worship. Jezebel brings death, and we may not accord with her. Our culture is so deeply entrenched in these rebellious patterns that it's hard for even the church to distinguish between God's patterns and the ways of this perverse generation. We see this in many expressions today, what we already cited. Um, Women that would control or usurp authority men that would wield authority and lord it over and destroy, um, therefore putting men and women at enmity. And then a Jezebel would find maybe an Ahab, a little bit more, a guy who has real authority, but also doesn't lead in the way he's supposed to. Men that don't lead are just as destructive as women that want to vie after their husband's authority in an ungodly way. Men are responsible for leading and... Ahab was responsible for making sure that the kingdom of God, the nation of Israel, was going in the right direction. He was the shepherd of Israel, that all the king's position very much functioned as a shepherd function and a judge function and all these other things. To allow Baal worship, to allow Asherah worship, and to allow all these idolatries and all these weaknesses that came in through the marriage alliance with Jezebel, he had to literally play a passive role. He didn't own his calling. He didn't lead effectively. Passivity and male authority is just as destructive as a manipulative Jezebelic tendencies in women. King Ahab is just as destructive to the kingdom of God or the purposes of God as a woman is. On the flip side, men that are too tyrannical, too overasserting of their authority, too bossy, too um, aggressive are just as destructive. As a woman who allows herself to be beaten up by men. That's a hard one. Yes, people that are abused by authority are victims. But God does not call us to victimhood. He calls us to victory. And to break every chain that binds, every oppression, that all oppression shall cease. I'm pretty sure we sang that a few times this season. Godly authority, male and female gender roles have to be understood as a way that God has patterned and structured creation where all oppressions cease in that equation. If we submit to this, if we become these things by the grace of God through the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit, by grace through faith, and the blood of the Lamb, these oppressions would cease. These disorders of authority and structures and Vying for power out of sinful intent, uh, being strife-oriented and enmities, all that ends in the ways of God, in the pattern of God. That stuff's neutralized and eliminated by the blood of the Lamb. This is, the, this is what I really want to get across. This poor world, <laughs> so <laughs> utterly confused, they can't tell the difference between male and female anymore. Does that break your heart? How did they get so far? Because we as the church have failed to distinguish male and female properly. If we are salt and light, which Christ says we are, not only can we stave the decay, but we can drive back the darkness. If the darkness increases and the decay advances, who's at fault? We are. To recognize the failures of our religion, the failures of our Christianity, our evangelicalism, or whatever we want to ism it, to recognize the failures that we are even potentially born into, we have to first off acknowledge the sin, repent thereof, thoroughly examine the problem and the decay, and repent of it and go the other direction male and female, working in concert together, not just in covenantal union, but within the church, letting all the gifts and the submissions to authorities and all of the blessedness that can possibly come through the image bearers of God in the earth, redeemed and sanctified and glorified, letting that shine, letting that be a city set on a hill that cannot be hid, letting that be a light that you don't put under a basket, but letting that instruct and disciple the nations. Is what we, as covenant Christians, covenant community, get to do together. This is the place where we flesh these things out. This is the place where we examine these hard topics. This is the place where we consider the decay of our culture and also look to the word of God for instruction on the solution. The ultimate solution is very clearly to subject ourselves to the pattern of God in his word. And do so with the safety and grace found in the covenant community that is missionally focused on a journey to incarnate the word of God in the fullness. We have given ourselves to this pursuit because without being people of the word, we ourselves do not possess the potency to redeem culture. We can't do this in and of our own selves. We need grace through the word, the spirit, and the covenant community to begin to have any sort of order that accords with godliness. And secondly to be able to even instruct the nations according to that godliness. So that's kind of what I wanted to get across, and I hope that was clear. But I also hope it does spur conversations on what male and female roles are, what is godly patterns of submission to authority, and how may men and women both express the full fruitfulness and giftedness that they've been given as image bearers, and to do so in a way that accords with the word and a godly pattern and order. This is not a sermon to try to shut women up and empower men, or to empower women and shut men down. That's not the point. It's to espouse that there is a godly pattern. We've got to be it, and the world needs it desperately. God help us. May our hearts break for the darkness and confusion that literally has swept over our land. Western civilization is so dark and confused, we can't tell the difference between male and female anymore. Have mercy on us, God. We repent of the blasphemies and the rebellions of our heart that have become offended at your word, become offended and questioned your authority. We repent of the rebellions of our heart and we submit ourselves afresh today as we come to your table, as we come to worship, as we come to your, we ascend the hill to come into your presence. We repent afresh and we desire to be taught and instructed. Please incline our hearts to you and please meet us here today. In Jesus' name, amen.